If you've been with us, we're in the book of Acts. We're walking through, we left off with the disciples. We're going to take this up to Acts chapter 9, and then we're going to go to the Old Testament for our next series. But um, up until now, Jesus has left, Acts chapter 1. The disciples are all there. Uh, they watch him ascend into heaven. That's Acts chapter 1. Acts uh, chapter 2, we have Pentecost. We have the Holy Spirit coming. That's 50 days after uh, the resurrection. Uh, we have uh, the Holy Spirit coming, and from that point in history, the Holy Spirit stays, and he permanently indwells uh, believers. Uh, we talked last week about Acts chapter 3, where a beggar was healed, and that's where we pick up our story. Peter and John have gone, the, they have healed a beggar, um, and again, this is a person who was carried every day, sat at the temple, and... The people are amazed. They see him jumping and leaping and walking with the disciples into the synagogue, into the temple, and they're amazed. And so Peter now has this incredible opportunity because everybody's wondering how in the world did this happen? How does this guy who for his entire life, from the time he was born, has never, ever walked, how is it that he's walking like he's been doing it all of his life? We don't understand that. And Peter has an incredible opportunity. So that's where we find our story. We find our story with Peter standing on the porch. Um, this isn't like your front porch. This is like, think of the Capitol. You know how you have the steps going up? That kind of deal, all right? So there's a, there, there's a porch there, and it's kind of everybody's there, and everybody's asking and pressing. And now Peter gets to preach. And he's going to preach a very similar message to what he did in Acts chapter 2. So some of it is going to be familiar, but some of it is going to be a little bit unique because the question is, how in the world is this happening? So Acts chapter 3, that's where we pick up our story. Verse 12, here's what it says, or 11. While the men held on to Peter and John, the man held on to, that's the beggar, all the people were astonished and came running to them to a place called Solomon's Colonnade or Solomon's Porch. When Peter saw them, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he decided to let him go. Now, I want to stop here for a minute and walk you through some of this. See where he says, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power? They're, say, they're looking at him going, hey, look, how did this happen? How did this happen? How did this happen? You guys are incredible. And the first thing he's going to do is he's going to direct the attention away from himself and onto Jesus. And that's important, okay? Um, by the way, that should help you because often you're going to see that in the disciples. As you see these healing miracles, they always direct the attention back to Jesus. They never keep the attention on themselves. That ought to be a big red flag to you. You start talking to somebody and they're talking about a healing ministry and da-da-da-da. If it's all about that person who can heal, that would be a flag because the attention needs to go to Jesus, and that's immediately what they do. And they say, look, why are you guys so surprised? Why, are you, why is this a shock to you? Because, again, these people, now in verse 16, he's going to tell us how, how, why this guy was healed. But um, he goes in and he said, um, why does this surprise you? See that little phrase, why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? That's an interesting word because it's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 1. Where, where the disciples, Jesus leaves them. And remember, it says he ascends up into heaven. And the disciples stand there going, gazing, is the, is the King James word, gazing, going, 
When's he coming back? When's he coming back? That was awesome. When's he coming back? And they just stare, waiting for him to come back. It's the same word. And he says, look, these guys are standing there like, like, we're just amazed. This is incredible. I can't believe this. I can't believe it. And they're standing there, and he says, um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified, now this is interesting, his servant Jesus. Jesus is now mentioned as a servant. Um, It only happens here in verse 26 and two times in chapter 4 where Jesus is referred to as a servant. It's important because primarily the people he's speaking to are Jewish people. And any Jew, the second you would have said servant Jesus, would have thought of Isaiah chapter 53 and the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. The fact that someone was going to come and suffer for them. And so when he uses this idea of servant, to a Jewish mind, things start clicking. And he goes on, and he says, oh, well, go back to that. Just go back, guys. I'm, I'm going to keep you on your toes. Uh, the, the God has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. He said, look, God sent him. You killed him. I mean, Pilate, even Pilate was saying, look, I'm washing my hands of this. This guy's innocent as far as I'm concerned. I don't want anything to do with this. And yet you killed him. You demanded that he be killed. You wanted him. Um, One of the things that you're going to see in the story is the number of um, contrasts um, over and over again. Think about this for a minute. They killed him, which makes them what? A murderer, right? Who was released? Barabbas. What was Barabbas? A murderer. You wanted a known murderer released so you could murder him. He says you, he was going to let him go, but you guys wanted it. You guys demanded it. It's your fault. And now, now he goes on. Uh, next verse, guys. He says, you disowned. The Holy and Righteous One. Uh, the Holy One has a reference basically to Old Testament. Uh, that, that phrase, that little Holy One, is, uh, it's used of uh, Elisha. Um, it's used of uh, Aaron. It's used, uh, the demons use it when talking about Jesus. They say, you know, you're the Holy One. Uh, other people in the New Testament refer to him as the Holy One. The Righteous One is, is a reference to the idea. Uh, it has this idea of Messiah. Uh, historically, it's, it's kind of tied to that. He said, you disowned him. You asked a murderer to be released to you. You killed the author of life. Again, stark contrast. The author of life, you killed. And we don't know if author of life has the idea of beginning or the idea of pioneer. Some people believe that the author of life phrase has a, it might have a reference to creation and, and, and the fact that, that all life started from God, it might have a reference to the idea of the resurrection. You were the author of a resurrected life. You were the beginning. You were the first. You were the pioneer of the first resurrected life um, to live on. And he goes on to say this. You killed the author of life, but God raised him up from the dead. You killed him, but God raised him up. And he goes on. By faith. In the name of Jesus, this man who you see and know was made strong. He says, you want to know how this happened? It was by faith in the name of Jesus Christ. 
He gives us two important aspects. First of all, the idea of faith. Um, there's some, some people believe it was the man's faith. Um, the Bible doesn't say that. Uh, and often when it is a man's faith that is talked about, the Bible mentions that. A lot of people believe this was Peter's faith. The faith that Peter and, and, and John in the name of Jesus Christ said, come on and walk and come with us. And so they see it as, as, as Peter's, faith, uh, uh, Peter's faith or John's faith. As you go on this thing, he says, uh, in the name of Jesus. And again, that was an important aspect. Up until this point, two things that happened in the name of Jesus, two primary things. Uh, either uh, baptized in the name of Jesus, in this case, healed in the name of Jesus. Um, by the way, don't, don't underestimate the power of the name of Jesus Christ. Um, some of you, you have been brought up in world where that was used as a swear word often. C- can I caution you against that? Can I tell you that that is an incredibly sacred and an incredibly precious name? Can I tell you that there are, there are over in the New Testament or in the New and Old Testament, there's over eight or two hundred different names for Jesus mentioned, but the primary one is Jesus. It's used over eight hundred times in Scripture. Um, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is an incredibly sacred thing, and we need to hold it in high esteem as well. And you know, I know often we're in a world where people use that word as a cuss word, as a swear word. And I understand how hard it is sometimes to get people to think about it. Um, I'm going to tell you what I've done. And again, I'm not in this world a lot, so it's a lot easier for me to do it. If I really want to take the cop out, I go, you know, I'm a preacher. (laughs) You'd be amazed how many people work really hard to not swear. Uh, One of the funnest times I ever had was a guy who, who we we were nailing up old sheets of tin. And if you know anything about old sheets of tin, okay, you know, anything about old sheets of tin, you know how they bang and all that kind of thing, and they're trying to do it. So we're nailing up old sheets of tin, and every time he hit his hand, he would cuss. And then he would apologize. And this was Todd, any of you know, this is Todd Clark. Todd and I were hanging. So we were pounding it, and he'd cuss. And his mom called, and he's on the phone to his mom. And we're pounding up tin, and he would hit his hand, and he would cuss, and he would say it. And then he would apologize to me. And she, He told me later, he said, that was the most frustrating day of my life. Because he said, he said, every time I turn, and to this day we laugh about it because it, so, it was so funny. Um, but it's one of those things where, uh, you know, one of the things that you can say, I mean, you've got to be good friends with these people, okay? Don't do this in a pious way. But one of the things that I've always done is, is try just using their name when you get frustrated. So in other words, if, if my wife was the one who was swearing all the time, um, <laughs> in other words, what I would do is I would go, ah, Gene Thomas. Team Thomas. And they go, why are you using my name all the time? I go, you know what? Does that bother you? Yeah, that bothers me. It's driving me crazy. Now you kind of know how I feel when you take a name that is very precious to me and you use it flippantly all day long. And then I laugh about it with them. But I say, you know, I, I just want you to understand, this isn't me trying to be pious about you. It's just something that I value and something that I treasure and something that's important to me. Um, and, and, and again, let's give the name of Jesus Christ the respect that it deserves. Okay, rabbit trail done. We're moving on. Uh, here's what he says. He said, by faith, in the name of Jesus, the man that you see and know was made strong. In Jesus' name, and the faith that comes through him, that he has completely healed him, as you can see. He said, look, you can see it. You can see what I have done. 
Okay? Through the name of Jesus Christ, God is the one who healed him. We were just simply tools that he used. And then he goes on. Um, the next, uh, next phrase. He goes, now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leader. This is very important. As he talks to these people, again, some of these, were, some of these people were at, at that scene where they were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Some of these people were ones who said, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. Peter looks at them, and this is very, very important, and he says, I understand what you did, you did in ignorance. Now, here's why it's important. In the Jewish world, there was no forgiveness for sins that were committed intentionally. So in other words... If they knew what they were doing and they did it, Peter could not have offered them forgiveness later. But Peter looks at him and says, look, I know that what you did, you did unintentionally. You didn't know what you were doing. Is that not what Jesus prays at the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he said, I understand that you guys didn't, under, didn't know what you were doing. And then notice what he says. <clears throat> but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Now we go back to the Isaiah 53 thing. That servant thing. He said, look, here's what you need to understand. You did it in ignorance, but it didn't take God by surprise. God knew a long time ago this was going to happen. And he goes on. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that the times of refreshing may come from the Lord. First thing he says is repent. Now, without getting this really complicated, let me show you what repentance is, okay? Because repentance is very, very simple, okay? I just repented twice. Ah, third time. Now, I'm going to repent a fourth time. All repentance is, is you're going one direction, you change, and you go the opposite direction. It's a turning away. It is a change. It is go. So, in other words, what he's saying is, look, you're going down this direction. You need to repent. You need to change. And notice what he says, and turn to God. Stop doing what you're doing. Change, stop, turn away, and turn to God. That's what you need to do. And notice what he says will happen, because this is really important. He says what? What's the verse up here? What does it say? What will happen when you do that? Your sins may be wiped out. Now, here, here's, this is fascinating. What this being in the Greek language, when this was written, um, it literally means wipe away the ink. That's the idea. Now, when you and I write something on a piece of paper, you write something on a piece of paper, and you try to wipe it off, what happens? Nothing. Why? Because the paper that we use is made to absorb the ink and absorb the ink quickly. The paper that they used in this time was papyrus, or sometimes it would be animal skins. And when they would write on it, with they little dip their little quill or whatever it was in, in, in ink, and they would write on it, because it had this waxy film on it, it would take a while for the ink to soak in. If you wrote something right away, you had time to wipe it off, and it was as if you had never written it. You ever seen the old movies where they're writing with that quill and the ink thing, and then what do they do? They go, what are they doing? They're trying to dry the ink. You don't see them write in it and then fold it up. It would all be a, a blurry mess. They, they, they carefully set it aside or they blow on it. To, that's what he's talking about. He's saying, look, when you repent and you turn to God, he wipes it away before it's ever had a chance to take root. 
before it's ever had a chance to absorb in. God takes that and does that to your sin. And then he says, and times that refresh you may come. Um, okay, you've got to follow me here for a second. But the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. Okay? So if you're a Greek, you're a Jew, or you're a Greek Jew, um, and, and Greek is your language, how do you read the Old Testament if you don't know Hebrew or Aramaic? You don't. You have to have a Greek version of it. The Greek version of it is called the Septuagint. So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That was what they had. So when we go to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, here's something interesting about this word, times of refreshing. It was used in reference to the plagues of Egypt and the frogs. Remember the story of the frogs? When the children of Israel are there, and it says... The frogs are everywhere. In fact, when you read the passage, it says the frogs are in the breeding or in the in the bread troughs. Here's what that meant. That meant when you took a slice of bread, it had a frog in it. It meant that when you sat down, there was a frog. It meant that when you walked, there literally was squish, squish, squish. It meant that it was a horrible. Horrible. And by the way, the Egyptians worshipped a frog god. In fact, if you look at the plagues of Egypt, they all relate to an Egyptian god. It's almost like God was saying, hey, look, you want to worship a frog god? I'll give you lots of frogs to worship. Now, what's interesting is the, this is one of the plagues that happened in the, with the children of Israel as well. So even the children of Israel experienced this, this plague. We get to a point where God makes it a line, and then they don't do it. But in this flake, it's the frogs. And so it says that, and the text says that what happened is God took away the frogs, and they all died at one moment. I had a friend who always used to preach this, and he said, uh, they all croaked. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, but they all died. Now, now, here's the problem. Now you've got a bunch of dead frogs to get rid of. It was bad enough that they were alive. Now you got dead frogs you got to get rid of. But here's the thing. It says that God delivered them from the frogs. Or the way it would be said in the New Testament was, when the frogs went away, it was a time of refreshing. It kind of went, glad that is over. What he says is, what happens is, that's what happens when we come to Christ is that what happens is things change. And literally, this is probably specifically a reference to a time to come when Jesus comes back, and it's a time of refreshing where God establishes this earth under original intent, the way it was supposed to be. And notice what he goes on to say. He says, so times of refreshing may come from the Lord so that he may send the Messiah who is appointed, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He said, look, you need to understand there's a time that Jesus could come back and make it all right. And then he goes on. Notice what he says in verse 21. Uh, Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. He says, look, you need to understand. Because, again, one of the questions is, okay, why is Jesus here? If he came out of the tomb, why did he leave? And Peter addresses that. He says, one of the reasons is he's in heaven waiting for you guys to get your act together to follow him again, and he's going to come back and make everything right. And he goes on, and he says this. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells them. Anyone who doesn't listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. He said, look, just like the days of Moses, God raised up prophets to say, this is what you need to do. 
The first prophet after Moses was a guy by the name of Samuel. Notice what he says in the next verse, 24. He goes on. Uh, indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold of these days. He said, look, this whole thing of Jesus dying, God's been talking about it for a long time. And he said, and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said, listen, God has made you heirs. This is part of your story. And he said to Abraham, through your offspring, all people on the earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he said him first to you to bless you by, each, by turning each of you from your wicked ways. He looks at me and says, you didn't understand that what God has done is God has set this thing up, this whole thing about Jesus coming. You guys crucified him? But you need to know, God knew a long time ago that that was going to happen. But God still sent him because he is the way that you can become a child of God. And his death, burial, and resurrection proved that there's hope and life after death. And so he tells him, look, you need to embrace this. And you need to turn from your wicked ways and, and repent and turn to God, just like you said earlier. All right? So, all right, now here we go. Let's talk about how we apply it this week. First thing. This is the hope that these guys had when, when Peter looks at them and says, you guys need to understand this. God had a plan. Now, you don't get it, but God had a plan. None of this took God by surprise. Can I challenge you today with that same simple concept? That God's got a plan. Whatever you're going through, whatever's come down your road, this, this, this past, whatever, didn't take God by surprise. God's not up in heaven going, oh, man, I didn't see that one coming. What am I going to do now? God said, no, you know what? I've got a plan for you. I can take your hurt. I can take your pain. I can take your struggle. I can, we're going to walk through it with you. And then down the line, you can help somebody else as they walk through it. You see, sometimes we forget that. We forget there's a much bigger picture at play. And there's a much bigger thing involved than, than, than our world. And I don't know what God's plan is for you, just like, I, just like I just spent time talking to you about. I am in the process of trying to figure out what God's plan is for us as a church. And it's a day-by-day, week-by-week, year-by-year thing. And it's no different for my life as it is for your life. God has a plan, and God is at work. And you trust him for your salvation. You have to trust him that he knows what's best for your life as well. And that's hard. That gets really hard at times. And, and, and I want to challenge you with this idea because some of you, some of you, life's events have taken you by surprise. But that doesn't mean it's taken God by surprise. And some of you are in the middle of, you know, well, this is really, really, really bad. Well, you know why it's really bad? It's really bad because you made some bad choices. And bad choices have bad consequences. But that doesn't mean God can't be at work and make some good come out of it. These people here made a bad choice. They crucified an innocent man. They crucified a sinless man. They embraced, and, and, and the irony of this, uh, the ironies of these, um, um, they, they, they killed the author of life. They said, give us a murder so we can murder Jesus. Now, by the way, Barabbas' name, it means son of the father. They, they, the son of the father was released so they could kill the only begotten son of God. There's so much irony in, 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 in the way that they did that. The deliverer 
was delivered to be crucified. There's all of these ironies that, 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 that you go with this text. And, and, and basically what he says is, you did it for evil, you meant it for bad, but God turned it into the most important event of all of history. You thought that by crucifying him you were done with him, but you don't, you don't understand. You, you set something off at that moment because when he came out of the tomb, it was all over. And this thing took off in an amazing way all the way throughout the world. God's got a plan for your life. I don't know what that is. But I can guarantee you this. When you get to eternity, you will be able to look back on it and be able to see how God had his hand on yours all the way along the way. And you were never, ever alone as a believer, as a child of God. Second idea is this. It has this idea of repent and turn to God. See, we talked about this in Sunday school. You don't come to God on your terms. You come to God on his terms. Jesus was very explicit. He said, I am the only way, the only way. I am the only way, the only truth, the only life. No one gets to the Father but by me. Cut to the chase, you know what he's saying? There are not many ways to God. They're not. You cannot believe whatever you want to believe and get to God. There is only one way, Jesus Christ, period. You have to turn from your sin to him, period. There's not a, well, you know, I just think that's your opinion. No, no, no. That's what Jesus says. And if there is any other way, then Jesus Christ is a liar If Jesus Christ is a liar, then he could not have lived a sinless life. If he could not have lived a sinless life, then he could not have died for me, and I am lost as well. He is who he said he is, and he did what he said he did. And let me tell you something. When he says, and he looks at you and and looks at at the disciples and says, Look, I am the only way, the only truth, the only life. No one gets to the Father but me. That is the only way. And repentance is simply an acknowledgement of my sin and a turning to God. <clears throat> Any other way, you fall short. I fall short. And if you've not done that, I want to challenge you this morning to look at your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about being a part of a church. I'm not talking about being a part of a domination. I'm not talking about being a part of a religion. I'm talking about being and having a relationship with Jesus Christ that is real. There's not some fake and phony thing like so many other people tend to to say, yeah, I'm a Christian, and then they do whatever they want and act however they want. No, that's not the the Christianity of the Bible, and that's not the Christianity of the cross. And and I want to challenge you. There's a great story. If you get a chance, go to Matthew chapter 21 sometime and read this story. Um, There's a great story that I think illustrates this so well. Jesus tells this story, and he says, look, here's the deal. Um, A daddy uh, came to his two boys. And said, I need you to go work in the yard. Now, actually, the, the Bible story is, I need you to go work in the vineyard. He comes to their first, first son, and he says, hey, I need you to go work in the vineyard today. And the first son looks at him and says, fat chance. I am not going to go work for you. And he takes off. And as he gets on down the road, he starts to think about it. He says, you know, that probably does need to be done. So he goes back and he does what the father asked and he works in the yard, he works in the vineyard. The other son 
He says, hey, I need to work in the yard today. I need to work in the vineyard. The other son looks at his dad and says, sure, dad, no problem. But he doesn't do it. He never goes out to work in the, in the yard, never goes out to work in the vineyard. Jesus tells the story, and then he asks this question. Who did the will of the Father? Which one did the will of the Father? First one or the second one? The first one. Why? Because he went back and did something. The other one spoke, but he didn't do anything. <clears throat> and Jesus ends the story by saying this. Such are some of you. And he looks at the religious rulers that were assembled around him in Matthew chapter 21, and he says this. He said, prostitutes and tax collectors are going to be in heaven before you because they're doing the will of the Father, and you're not. You're all talk and no show. Now listen to me. Christianity is not about what we say as much as about what we do. You need, to, you need to understand that. That's why 1 John talks about all the people who say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. And 1 John says stuff like this. Really? You hate your brother? Your action's hateful? Then you know what? Doesn't count. You know? Say whatever you want, but it's not real. I, I'm a Christian, but I can live any way I want. Really? First John 2.15 says, let me tell you something. If you say you're a Christian and you're in love with the world and you don't want to let go of the world, then you're kidding yourself. It's got to be real. It's got to be genuine. And I think so many times what happens in our lives is we're a lot of talk, but we're not a lot of action. And repentance, turning to God, means not just in salvation, but it means that, you know what, we change. We embrace. We follow God. And, and here's my thing. Be careful about deceiving yourself. Be careful about going, well, you know what, I really love God. I really love God. I really love God. I can't stand that guy, that guy kid. I, if I get a chad, kill him if I thought I'd get away with it. Be careful about having an unforgiving heart. I understand we get hurt. I understand people stab us in the back. I understand people do things. But let me tell you something. As a Christian, you do a little bit of reading about what it means to forgive. Peter uses this message to explain to them that, look, God's forgiven you. God forgave you for crucifying him. He's forgiven you. I'm not going to minimize what somebody's done to hurt you or said or whatever else. I'm not going to minimize it at all. But here's what I will say this. No one has treated you the way you've treated Jesus Christ. And yet he forgave you. That's what we're called to do. We're called not just to talk about it, but to do it. We're called not just to simply go, you go, well, you know, I'm just not there yet. Okay, as long as you're heading in that direction where you're trying to get there, that, then God's, God's pleased with that. But if you're sitting here going, I'm never going to do it, I'm never I'm going to be mad at that ex forever and ever and ever, and if I ever got a no. Be careful about claiming the name of Christ if we're not willing to turn to God and away from that which God says it's wrong.
Be careful there. And I, this idea of repentance, this idea of changing, this idea of turning to God is serious business, okay? And, and like you say, Matthew 21 is pretty explicit about the idea of, look, God doesn't just want you to talk about it. God wants you to do it. Okay. <laughs> I hate doing stuff like this because I'm going to get myself in trouble. If you tell your wife you're going to do something... Don't talk about it. Do it. Okay, now nobody's coming back next week. So we will postpone building the building. Uh, no, um, you follow where I'm going? Follow where I'm going with this? Look, you know as well as I do, you hate phony people. You hate people that talk, that are all talk and, all, and, and, and no go, that are all show, that put on the air, to tell you what you want to hear, and then don't do it. You know those people drive you nuts, and you know you have no respect for them. And if the world is going to respect us, then when we talk about living, we talk about being a Christian, we need to live like one. And we need to act like one. We need to be and do the things that Christians be and do. Okay? And that's important, because let me tell you something. You know as well as I do, a world has... A world could care less about the fakes and the phonies because they've seen so many of them. We don't want to be those kind of people. We want to be the kind of people that, you know what, Christ is in us and they see it. And then the last thing is this idea of, and I touched on it a little bit, just as repentance is an essential part of Christianity, so is forgiveness. And some of you, look, some of you are hanging on to some stuff that you don't get it, but it's, it's crippling you. It's hurting you. I get people hurt you. I get people stabbed you back. I get that people said things and then did things. I, 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 I get all of that. I've lived it. I've experienced it. I've watched it. I, I, I've done it. And in the end, it's not healthy. In the end, it hurts your Christian walk. It does not help your Christian walk. And if we're going to claim to stand before God with our sins forgiven because God forgave us much, then we need to forgive as well. And some of you, if you haven't worked through the process, you need to do whatever you need to do to start working through that process of being able to forgive because it is an essential part. And when you look at this passage, this is essential to the message. It's the name of Jesus Christ, faith in Christ's name, forgiveness of sin, repentance. All of those are essential part of this message that Peter gives to these people, and it's, they're great for us as well. So I close with this. Peter reminds the people that God has been at work throughout history. They and us needed to repent and turn to God for salvation. It's the only way to come to God. Faith in the person, name, and work of Christ is the way to genuine repentance. Forgiveness of sin is offered, and it's granted to everyone who will come to God on God's terms and not your own. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Lord, it's easy to talk. It's hard to do. And Lord, the reality is some of us need to change some stuff, so help us. The reality of it is, Lord, there are some here who need to come to Christ. They're trusting in something other than you. Lord, let this be a day that, that, that is life-changing for them as well. 
For those of us who are believers, we put our faith and trust in you, and we're doing the best we can to live for you. Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves, to change the things we need to change, to turn to you in the areas that we have turned and absorbed ourselves. And Lord, when it is all said and done, may people see Christ in our lives this week. And Lord, may our lives this week be more about what we do than just what we say. And when it is all said and done, we'll give you the honor and the glory and the praise. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Um, Let's stand together, and we're going to sing the first verse. There are only one verse. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Jesus.